Good morning, church. Good morning. Very early in the morning, the chief priests with their elders, the teachers of the law, and the whole Sanhedrin made their plans. So they bound Jesus, led him away, and handed him over to Pilate. Are you the king of the Jews? asked Pilate. <coughs> we have said so, Jesus replied. The chief priests accused him of many things. So again Pilate asked him, Aren't you going to answer? See how many things they are accusing you of. But Jesus still made no reply, and Pilate was amazed. Now it was the custom at the festival to release a prisoner from, from whom the people requested. A man called Barabbas was in prison with the insurrectionists who had committed murder in the uprising. The crowd came and asked Pilate to do for them what he, what he usually did. Do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? Asked Pilate, knowing it was out of self-interest that the chief priest had handed Jesus over to him. But the chief priest stirred up the crowd to have Pilate release, release Barabbas instead. What shall I do then with the one you call the king of the Jews? Pilate asked them. Crucify him, they shouted. Why? What crime has been committed? asked Pilate. But they shouted at the louder, crucify him. Wanting to satisfy the crowd, Pilate released Barabbas to them. He had, he had Jesus flogged and handed him over to be crucified. Thank you very much. Thank you. And there's a, um, can I have that, uh, whoever has the remote thing. Thank you very much. Cheers, Victor. Thank you. So we're continuing on our road to the resurrection. In a couple of weeks' time, it'll be Easter Sunday, and we will be talking about the resurrection. And we're on the road there, to the cross, but beyond the cross, through that, to the empty tomb, because that's ultimately where we're off to. So our title today from this passage is Jesus, the Strong, Silent King. Strong, silent. When you think of strong, and strong, silent people, who do you think of? Who do you think of? Think of a strong, silent person. Who would that be? Especially, I mean, it's more characteristic of men, I think, as a thing, isn't it? But I don't want to be sexist, but um, uh, strong, silent types, who, would, who comes to mind? <laughs> Stefan is very strong, absolutely, and silent when he needs to be, maybe. Certainly when he's eating ice cream, anyway. But that's a whole other story. Uh, Akin. The queen. Okay. She keeps her counsel, doesn't she? Yeah. Gandhi. Okay. That's a great spot. Yes. Okay. Gandhi. Yes. Other ideas? Strong silent types? The Incredible Hulk. Oh. The Incredible Hulk. <laughs> the Hulk. Yeah, it needs a lot of devastation uh, that isn't silent, but it's, uh, yes, in himself. When I was growing up, it was Clint Eastwood. In the 70s, all those spaghetti westerns, you know, he never said much, just turned up, shot everybody. Uh, left town. I mean, that was that was what he did, right? Strong, silent types. Would you like to be a strong, silent type? <laughs> Interesting. I, I don't know. Uh, there is a myth I've heard that women are attracted to strong, silent men. I have to tell you, you probably already know this, ladies, but the strong, silent man is only silent because he has no idea what to say to a woman. <laughs> and he's secretly extremely insecure. So uh, don't, don't fall for that. What we have here is a strong and silent Jesus, almost silent. And I think there's a lot we can learn from him about our spiritual lives and what it means to follow him. What's so impressive here about him? So we, we see that we're continuing with him having been arrested and had, had one trial. He's now having another trial. He's had a supposedly religious trial in chapter 14. Now he's having a supposedly civil 
trial with Pilate. And the teachers of the law, the Sanhedrin, the chief priests, the elders, that's a very large group, could well be as much as 100 people. The Sanhedrin was 71 men, so it could easily be that many. They are gathered very early in the morning. And like the Gospel of Mark, as you may know, the Gospel of Mark is a, is a Gospel of action. Jesus is always going somewhere, doing something immediately. The word immediately comes up time and time again in the Gospel of Mark. There's action going on. And Mark is showing us that Jesus' uh, life is dynamic. And it, again, we've got this sort of thread going on here where this, this other trial is over very early in the morning. They get on and they move on, taking him away to Pilate. This is probably uh, somewhere between 4.30 and 5.30 a.m. The earliest that Pilate would see people was 5.30 in the morning. He held court from 5.30 to 12 noon. So they were having their gathering probably about 4.30. Now, when he says that they, um, they made their plans, actually a more uh, literal translation is they had a consultation. They held a consultation. I don't know what your consultants do. Uh, some of you are consultants at various times. Uh, they had a consultation at 4.30 in the morning and then bound Jesus and led him away. It's very intimidating uh, for Jesus right here. And I don't know about you, but I hate the idea of being bound. I'm not going to ask you if any of you have ever been handcuffed by the police for any reason. Uh, you can tell me later if you like. But that sense of, and that's not happened to me so far, but that sense of not having freedom with your hands or perhaps with your feet. It's a scary thought, isn't it? And this is what is happening to Jesus. The, 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 the creator of all things is being bound by human beings who do not understand who he is and what's really going on here. And they take him to Pilate. And on the uh, handout this week, the Wapid Word, you'll see some more details about the kind of character that Pilate had. He was a, a very cruel man. It could be argued that you had to be to succeed in this job because the Jews were known as the most rebellious province of the Roman Empire. So they tended to send the most uh, cruel and hard-headed and heavy-handed uh, people to govern the uh, Judea. That was what they tended to do. And Pilate that was no different. Uh, a few years ago, Penny and I were in Caesarea Maritima. That's a photograph of the theater there. That's on the coast. Uh, Pilate wouldn't stay in Jerusalem most of the time. Who wanted to be in a smelly city amongst all those Jewish people? You know, from a Roman perspective, Instead, his headquarters were on the coast. Wouldn't you rather be on the coast anyway? And he's on the Mediterranean coast at a place called Caesarea Maritima. And that's where there was a palace also built by Herod the Great. And it was a very nice spot, a bit like going down to live in, I don't know, Bournemouth or somewhere rather like that, uh, down in a nice place. So that's where he lived. And I've got a little bit of video here. I've turned the sound down of the, when they did the chariot races um, in, uh, in those days. If you've seen Ben-Hur, uh, you know, that's the kind of thing that would be going on in that area. It was a thriving place. It was a wealthy place. That's where Pilate lived. That's where he stayed most of the time. He would come up to Jerusalem for the festivals. That's why he went there. And one other thing, although it's not the main part of my, my uh, lesson here, is just to say that uh, Pilate was an historical figure. Uh, we have evidence from other writings, like Josephus, who's not a Christian, that Pilate did exist, or other writings as well. And not so long ago, an inscription was found right here in Caesarea Maritima, uh, actually, as part of the rebuilt theater, they reused some stone that had been inscribed uh, in previous times. And that stone is uh, this one. This is in the Israel Museum. There are facsimiles, similar uh, uh, ones around the world, but this is the original. And the inscription you can barely see there, but it says that this building is being, being built in honor of Tiberius, who's one of the uh, emperors. So while Pilate was governor, he built a building in honor of Tiberius, probably a temple, actually, and it mentions his name, Pontius Pilate. It was built by Pontius Pilate, prefect of Judea. So we have archaeological evidence that a person called Pilate existed. And I think this is very important on a faith level. 
Our faith depends on God's word and his spirit working through his word into us, but our faith is backed up by historical evidence. And that's really important because you'll meet people today who say, Jesus never really existed. He was just a myth. He was just, how can we know what happened 2,000 years ago? We can't trust anything from that long ago. But we have more documentary evidence of the existence of Jesus than we do of Julius Caesar or almost any of the figures from, say, 2,000 or more years ago. And we have archaeological evidence that the Bible's reliable because what that shows us is that what Mark is writing about is real. It's not made up. It's not a fantasy. And I think that's one of those things that is helpful as a Christian to continue to build your faith by getting to know archaeological uh, evidence and things like that so that you can share with other people these things are real. They are not made up. Anyway, that's not the main point here today. Now we're going to look at so what happens between him and Pilate in verse 2. The silence of Jesus. The silence of Jesus amazes Pilate. He asks him if he's the king of the Jews. Uh, that's the way a Jew, Gentile would have addressed this. He wouldn't have used that shows that he's not coming from a Jewish perspective. And the way he asks the question in the Greek, are you the king of the Jews, is more like, you're the king of the Jews? You've got to be kidding me. Because Jesus is unimpressive, right? At least to his eyes. And it's the key question. Is he the king of the Jews? That's the key question for the Pharisees and the high priests. It's the key question for Pilate, because if he really is claiming to be king, he has a reason to execute him. It's the key question, frankly, for humankind. Is Jesus truly king? And it's the key question for you and I here today. Do we really see? Do we really believe he is the authentic king of kings? And Jesus' reply is interesting. You have said so. You have said so. What odd kind of response. Here, he's not denying that it's true that he's king of the Jews, but I think what he's saying is that I am king of the Jews, but not in the way you're asking me the question. You're asking me a question with your assumption about what that means. That's not what I perceive as my role as king of the Jews. His conception of kingship is very different to that of Pilate. So let me ask you, what do you think Jesus meant by or understood by himself being the king of the Jews? What kind of king was he? What kind of king would he claim to be? What kind of king is revealed in the scriptures uh, as for him to be? What would you say? How would you describe Jesus as king? What do you think he was thinking? A spiritual king? Okay, a spiritual king. What kind of king? What do you think? What kind of king in his mind? Stephen? <laughs> Not of this earth. My kingdom is not of this earth. Right? It, it extends into this earth, but it's not based here. Yes, okay. A different territory involved. Right? Not an inherited kingship. Okay, yeah. Right, it's not like he's passing it passed on from his father or something. Right? Not a succession like that. Any other idea? Eternal. eternal kingdom, right? Not temporary like Tiberius or somebody else, but eternal. Mm. For him, eternal. Not a kingship that's eternal, but him as king is, is eternal. Mm. Any other ideas? Sacrificial. A sacrificial king. Yeah. Not a not an egotistical king. Right. Sacrificial king, yeah. Okay, a king who is superior to and beyond all other kings. Mm. King of all kings. Simon? King of angels. 
king of angels, okay? Superior to the angels. Hebrews talks about that, okay? King of those angels as well. What kind of king? You know, the way that we think about the kingship of Jesus fundamentally shapes our relationship with him, our attitude towards his commands, and the way that we live. And if you haven't thought much about that, I'd encourage you to do so. We need to think about it, because he is our king. Many more accusations are made. It says in verse 3, they can't find anything that really sticks. And then he gives no answer. And Pilate is confused. Aren't you going to answer? See how many things they are accusing you of. He still made no reply. Still made no reply. And Pilate was amazed. All right, another question. Why doesn't he answer? Why does he stay silent? Why does he not speak? I mean, it's not like Jesus doesn't know how to speak, but doesn't like an opportunity to teach. He's known as a teacher, right? So he stays silent. Why would somebody falsely accused, unfairly treated, given an opportunity to defend themselves or explain, why would they not? Why stay stumm? Sorry? He didn't have to prove himself, okay? He knows what has to come, right? It is coming, it has to come. Okay. Debating or arguing wouldn't change the outcome, right? It was settled. Yeah. Okay. Any other reasons? He was humble. Okay. You do tend to find humble people, maybe not talking as much as some. Shall we say? Yeah, he was humble. Okay. Any other reasons you can think of? Why is he silent? Is that Patricia? I think it's very important. He was at peace with what he had to do. Yes, he had that, that serenity, didn't he? Victor? Uh, well, given that he doesn't seem to be getting through before this, the chances are that he's going to be misunderstood again, whatever he says. Or if not misunderstood, rejected, perhaps, or yeah, not paid attention to. Hearts were already hardened. This situation wouldn't have got to this point if the hearts weren't already hard and not open to whatever he was going to say. So kind of what's the point? Don't cast your pearls before swine. It's something Jesus said, and it seems like that would apply here, wouldn't it? Well, he didn't answer. He was calm. He was dignified. He was courageous. I think it takes courage to keep quiet, actually, when you know you could speak up. It's very much contrast here with the religious leaders. Uh, and even Peter, who protests his innocence, remember, from chapter 14, they speak, he stays silent. And this silence is not an admission of guilt. In Roman law, uh, if you accused somebody in a, in a court situation and the defendant uh, stayed silent, there was a presumption of guilt. So Pilate would take this silence as a presumption of guilt, but his silence is not an admission of guilt. It's a, perhaps connected with your point, Patricia, I think it's a settled surrender. Long been decided in Gethsemane. It was there fixed that he would remain surrendered to God's will, despite how awful this was turning out. So that's what we have with Pilate. Fundamentally, Pilate is amazed, but it doesn't lead him to faith. And that's an interesting point. There are many people who think Jesus is impressive, maybe on the equivalent with a Gandhi, like you mentioned, Barry, or somebody like that. But amazement or respect on that level doesn't always lead to faith. And that's something for us to bear in mind. We find Jesus impressive, but it's meant to lead us to something else to do with his kingship. We'll come back to that. 
And then we have Pilate turning to the crowd. Um, he's got Barabbas there. Uh, he's in prison. These insurrectionists have committed murder. And the crowd comes and says, Pilate, do what you normally do. Give us a prisoner, um, like as a, I don't know, a present for, uh, for this time of year. And what do you want? He says, do you want me to release this king of the Jews? Because he knows it's out of self-interest that the chief priest handed Jesus over to him. But those chief priests stir up the crowd and they ask for Barabbas instead. What shall I do with the one you call king of the Jews? And they say, crucify him. They don't say it, they shout, crucify him. What crime has he committed? Crucify him. They're not even listening. So he wants to satisfy the crowd. The silence of Jesus amazes Pilate. The shouts of the crowd <coughs> manipulate Pilate. We're all susceptible to manipulation by the crowd. That can be sometimes helpful, but sometimes deadly. Pilate is manipulated by the crowd here. Now, I'm a believer in democracy and consensus, but you've got to be careful sometimes about the results of the crowd. Who remembers what this boat ended up being called? Do you remember this story? There was a public vote on names for this boat, for an Arctic exploring uh, boat. And the, the, the vote winner was Boaty McBoatface, uh, which was a little embarrassing for the organizers of the poll and I suppose for the owners of the, the boat. I'm not quite sure. Uh, they ended up giving it the name, I think it's called the David Attenborough, isn't it? It's called, given, they're given the name of Attenborough to it, which is much better. But they, they do have an exploratory submarine thing, which they have called Boaty McBoatface. I don't have a picture of that. But sometimes the crowd doesn't come up with the right best idea, does it? Let's face it. These high priests were jealous of Jesus. It says that, uh, that they had a self-interest here. And the word that can be translated jealous or envy, the Greek word thronos means the heart burns or the stomach is hot. Have you ever had that kind of jealousy? Towards somebody, somebody, like you want what they've got, that envy of what they've got, it burns in you. Well, that's how they felt about Jesus. They were envious. They were jealous, presumably of his popularity, his following, his audience. Perhaps they're frightened that he will take on some kind of political power that will remove them from their position of influence. Up till now, it's been their preserve. Perhaps they fear being usurped, and so they stir up the crowd to commit a travesty of justice. Pilate knows that Jesus is innocent. He says, what crime has he committed? He asks the question because he knows that the crowd can't give him a good answer. But they don't give him an answer. They just say, crucify him. We don't care. We want him dead, is what they're saying. What they're really saying here, when they call for crucifixion, is they're saying, Jesus is a robber. Caesar is our king. That's who we think of him as, a robber. And Pilate hands him over. You know, in Christian history, there's been a lot of debate over the centuries as to who was finally responsible for the crucifixion of Jesus. Is it the soldiers? Is it Pilate? Is it the Jews? And I want to say this briefly now, just to say, unfortunately, in a large swathe of Christian history, the emphasis has fallen on the Jews crucified Jesus. And it's been an excuse for anti-Semitism, which is never right. And it was 
at the instigation of Jewish people that he was crucified, you could say. Pilate played his part. The mixed rabble played their part. The soldiers played their part. But ultimately, the reason Jesus was crucified was because of my sin and yours. We sent him to the cross. So let's never have any excuse for anti-Semitism. It's uncalled for and unchristian. Are we following the crowd? First Peter 4 says this. Since Christ suffered in his body, which is coming, arm yourselves also with the same attitude, an attitude that Jesus shows us here, of patience and trust in God. Whoever suffers in his body is done with sin. As a result, today we do not live our uh, um, we do not live the rest of our earthly lives for evil human desires. This incident changes us, but rather we live for the will of God as supremely demonstrated in what Jesus is doing here. You spent enough time in the past doing what pagans choose to do, living in debauchery, lust, drunkenness, orgies, carousing, and detestable idolatry. And at some point, I think all of us here can say, Amen, that's where I was. I've been there. You spend enough time doing that, and people around you today, verse 4, they are surprised that you do not join them in their reckless, wild living. And they heap abuse on you, as they heaped abuse upon Jesus. That they will have to give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. We spend enough time doing that stuff. Let's live differently. Let's not follow the crowd. Part of the Christian life is getting settled with the idea that, and the reality that, we do not fit in. We don't fit into this world. We don't fit into the values of this world. We're fundamentally separate from those values while still living within this world. We are in this world, as Jesus said, but not of it. That doesn't mean we don't love this world in many ways, because God made it. But it does mean that we have to get used to the idea that we're never going to have the majority of people on our side. Government legislation is never going to go our way, at least not most of the time. The council or our neighbors, our friends and family, they're not going to understand why we live the way we do. And that's just one of those things we get used to. And let's face it, if we didn't stand out as different, how would anybody know there was a different way to live? Jesus is suffering, and the way he bears up under it is our inspiration to persevere when people misunderstand, don't appreciate a different way to live. We'll go on to the last part here, to the encounter Jesus has with the soldiers. So we've had, we've had a situation here with Pilate. The silence of Jesus amazes Pilate, and the shouts of the crowd manipulate Pilate. And now we see the strength of Jesus as he defies the soldiers' mockery. So verse 16, the soldiers led Jesus away into the palace, the praetorium, together with a whole company of soldiers. That's a lot of people. They put a purple robe on him. They twist together a crown of thorns and set it on him. They begin to call out to him, Hail, King of the Jews. Again and again, they struck him on the head with a staff and spat on him. Falling on their knees, they paid homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they took off the purple robe, put his own clothes on him, and then they led him out to crucify him. I don't know if you've ever been beaten up. I hope not. But I doubt it was quite like this. And quite often when people get beaten up, although it's never good, they may have had some fault in what happened 
But with Jesus, there is no fault whatsoever. We have, first of all, a flogging with a whip, with something like these instruments, uh, cord, uh, bone, um, uh, metal, uh, various things, designed to not only hurt, but to tear into the flesh of Jesus' back. I find it rather interesting, that's the right word, that Mark doesn't give us more detail. It's often the case in Christian films about the crucifixion that a great deal is made of the flogging in detail. Of course, the flogging is important. I'm not saying it isn't. But our sensibilities, we almost like the drama and the shock of it. It seems to somehow stimulate us in a way that the gospel writers are more restrained. They tell us he was flogged. But they don't tell us all the detail. And it's not because it wasn't horrific. It's because they want to keep the focus on Jesus, I think, even more than what happened. Strange there's not more detail in the way. The robe is put on him, probably not quite like this, but not dissimilar, a purple robe. Purple was very expensive, as you may know, in that time. It's actually more likely, because of the cost of a robe like this, it's more likely the robe was mostly white with perhaps just a purple stripe across it. I'd say that's more likely. Why? Because a purple robe with a stripe across it, the stripe would cost you in that day's uh, currency, so to speak, um, the equivalent of a new car today. So are you going to put in, you know, how much purple are you going to put on somebody's back like this? It's going to get blood all over it. I don't think soldiers are that rich. So I don't know exactly what they put on his back, but it, it was very, very expensive, even if it was just a little stripe. Uh, the purple dye comes from uh, <laughs> uh, little uh, things like this that are in the Mediterranean, murex shells. And to get enough dye to, to do one garment, you'd need thousands of those. You take a tiny gland out of those and then grind the what's in there, grind it to a small powder and then mix it. Uh, very, very expensive. That's on his back. And of course, the... The crown of thorns. And in, in that culture, that day, kings were often uh, uh, depicted as having a, a crown that had like points coming out of it, which look, would have looked a bit like a thorn. So you had these points coming out of the crown and light coming out, showing that they are a benevolent person bringing light to a dark world. And it's the same kind of image in the background to what's going on here, except that this is a crown of thorns that's not only pointing out, but digging into his flesh, the light of the world. Some severe ironies here. Then uh, they also beat him um, with a, a star, or sometimes it's called a reed. Uh, it, when they call it a reed, it doesn't mean it's reed, weedy, reedy. Uh, it's a very strong um, stick that would very much hurt. And they kneel and mockingly worship him. Now he stays strong and silent. He trusts. Extraordinary. Because one day, every knee will bow. In being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place, gave him the name that's above every name. That at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow. In heaven, 
on earth and under the earth. Every time acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord, you could say King, to the glory of God the Father. Day's coming. And all will bow. Some willingly. Some not so willingly, but I don't think with any hesitation because it will be so obvious that oh, that's the king Jesus was and is. Strong and silent at this time because he was surrendered to God's will. We're going to take some communion in a moment, some emblems representing the body and blood of Jesus. Patricia's going to come up and pray for us just before we pass those around and take those. I'd like to remind us that we're taking them to, rem to remember the inspirational nature of Jesus. He cared more for you and me than he did for his own safety, for his own comfort, for his own defense, for his own vindication. He cared for us more than that, and that's why he stayed silent. And his strength came from his relationship with his father, which is available to you and me the same today. You may not feel you have strength for your challenges right now. I was talking to a friend yesterday who asked me about my, what are you, what's your challenge list, Malcolm? It took me quite a long time to tell her the whole list. I felt very overwhelmed after I told her all the things I feel challenged by around by now, uh, that whole list. But with God, we have the strength. And whatever you're going through at home, with your children, with your spouse, with neighbors, with challenges at work, with health issues, whatever you're going through, there's enough strength for you. If there was enough strength for Jesus to go through this, there's enough strength for you. And Jesus will supply it if we but ask. Jesus is amazing. Let's have faith in him. Let's let him be our king. Patricia, would you like to come up, please? And pray for us.